and I are going to go to Seven Hills and go hiking. And it'll be three not-so-old men, right, hiking. So if we disappear, it's probably because we lost our way. Somehow we deviated from the path, and uh, if we're gone like a few days or a week or you don't hear from us, the wives will be like, thank goodness. Uh, or they may be in a panic because we, we need to be found. And we need uh, a savior in the form of somebody that's going to rescue us. Well, I love going hiking and just looking at nature. And I'm so grateful for this weather that we have going on right now. I mean, isn't this awesome? That snow we had the other day, I don't know what that was all about. But it can just, that was winter for me. Wouldn't that be great if that was our winter and now we can just go right back to business? That would be awesome. But unfortunately, we know that we live in Ohio, and winter doesn't shut down. Uh, as much as we pray every year, Lord, just like everything else, let's just push the pause button, huh? How about on winter, too? But not so much. Uh, the things that we struggle with in life, they will be there, and they will be challenging, and weather's one of them. But also, living in a world that is so... Uh, so much caught up in uh, confusion and disarray and frustration is something that God sees us have to deal with every day while we're on the path. And as a pastor, I really struggle with seeing our people go through their own experiences, their own frustrations, their own fears, their own anxieties, their own worries about the times that we live in. And I, I want to do what I can to help each of us along the way to be encouraged because I know that it's been a long road and I know that it's easy to fall off of the path and lose our way and that's something that we don't want to do and I know that it's an even greater struggle because in so many ways we are disconnected and isolated uh, from each other, and when we get isolated, we get, we get lost. And so I don't know what the answer is for those who are living under the conditions that they are required to be isolated, but if we can, we just want to encourage them. And today I'm, I'm coming from a passage of Scripture, oddly enough, that maybe you don't read very much because it comes out of a somewhat scary book, uh, and that is the book of Revelation. And I wanted to look today, in light of everything that's been happening with national elections and chaos and living in a pandemic and all the things that, um, you know, our kids who are growing up under this experience are going to say, yeah, that was a really weird time. But maybe for them it was, that was the normal way things are and we don't know any different. And when Jesus came into the world, everybody had this sense that the way things are are just sort of normal. And he brought a vision to bear upon life that when people started to wrap their minds around this vision, they began to see hope and possibility and another path that would perhaps lead them out of those things that they felt locked into, those things that they felt disconnected God, with God through, those things that left them despairing rather than hopeless. And he provided good news. Good news that there is a better way. And a lot of people in his day started to tune in. And, of course, we know many of them fell away whenever Jesus was persecuted and crucified. 
But then when he came back to life in the resurrected form, all of a sudden, it's like it is on again, and people were excited, and the word was going out, and people were beginning to meet in their homes, and the gospel spread. And one of the places that the gospel spread was an area that is known as Asia of the day, which would be like modern Turkey. And if you look at a map, uh, perhaps you can see it, if I can put it on there. So I click on a graphic in my thing, and it gives me Hebrews, okay? Oh, did it? There we go. All right. So I love technology. It's so wonderful, isn't it? It's our Savior, right? It promises so much and under-delivers so well. But Jesus seems to, at times, under-promise and over-deliver. And that's what these people were discovering. In this place that uh, these churches that had been established a generation or not even a generation after Jesus' time here on earth, uh, they, are, they are thriving, growing congregations of people living in environments that are pretty hostile to the things that they believe and I'm going to get into that in just a second, but um, the passage of Scripture that we're looking at, we're going to do an urban exploration of the city of Pergamum. Have you ever heard of ur urban explorers? Maybe you have, maybe you haven't. These are the people, usually people 20-something and 30-something, oftentimes males who have nothing better to do, who go into those places that say, keep out. They're closed, they're factories, they're city facilities, they are nuclear facilities that are, that are shut down, and they love to go, take a GoPro, and just record everything that they're discovering there in, in, those, in those taboo places. And sometimes I'll, I'll, I'll get on YouTube and I'll see, where are these people going, and what are they finding, and what is the story for the vacated facility slash factory slash um, tunnel that is under the ground that was designed for a subway but never got done? Well, the place that we're going today is Pergamum because that place, like all those places in urban exploration, has a story. And I think that story is pretty meaningful in light of everything that's just happened in the, uh, the last year and even in the last week. So, John is writing in the book of Revelation, and in chapter 2, he's addressing seven churches, the ones that you saw listed on that map, Pergamum being one of them, and this city in particular is very interesting because it says a lot of things that I think you'll, you'll, you'll find very familiar. So, here's what Jesus says to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write... These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. And we're going to stop right there because I think that will get us started. And as you're looking at this map again of Pergamum, which obviously my phone says map, and that says, uh, there we go, uh, 
as you're looking at this map, this city, Pergamon, was actually in the two centuries prior to the time of Jesus, the most important city in the Roman Empire. As odd as that sounds, it was the place that by architectural standards and design, it was the New York City of Rome. And for those two centuries prior, Pergamon had center stage because of all the things that were happening in this city. Now, in the time of Jesus, all of that attention actually began to wane, and people were directing to a port city called Ephesus. Okay, you got that? Pergamon and then Ephesus. Now, Pergamon was a, um, a city that by design... By design, oh, there we go. So if I do that, <laughs> I get that. I don't know how well you can see this, but um, this is sort of a model rendering of it, and I'll, I'll perhaps show you another one. And this may be a little bit better, okay? When you look at this, now from the distance, it doesn't have the clarity that it should have, but it is a re- uh, redepiction of everything that this city was all about. It was, it was 1,800 feet up on a hill, and you could see it for miles around. And it, it was spectacular because elevated on this city, on a hill, were very important civic places that were central to the Roman Empire as it was known at that time. And Pergamum was the place that was famous in the sense that there was an authority figure in the form of the Roman emperor who had a statue dedicated to him that was a way of just depicting that Pergamum and the very first Roman emperor, Caesar Augustus, he, he, he wanted from the statue and from the, the monument that was a testament to his greatness, he wanted to flow from that everything into the rest of the Roman Empire, okay? And the interesting thing about how this is established is all of the other buildings that are associated with this location high on a hill where everybody could see it, there is this rendering of just very sensational architecture, some of the best in the known world of the day. And yet the scripture tells us this is the place where Satan has his throne. And I think that's worthy of taking note of. And I think as you, as you discover what some of these places mean, you'll understand why that is, that, that is the case. So when we look at the, at the images of the temples, you see um, the Trajan Temple where the Roman emperor is, is memorialized. You have the library right next to the Athena Temple, and you have this uh, the sense and the imagination of the Roman citizens that Athena is the goddess of war and of wisdom. And that library that is there is actually the second largest library in the known world uh, of the day. And it housed all of the important books that made it the embodiment of wisdom there. And it really was, it was like our Library of Congress, so to speak. Now, this temple 
was a representation not only of wisdom, but also the one who embodied the goddess of war. And the reason why Caesar Augustus was such a formidable presence is because he was all about the peace of Rome, which basically meant we're going to go and we're going to shut down everybody who is against us, and the peace will be based on our ability to keep the opposition in check. That was the peace of Rome, meaning that if you didn't conform with, conform with what we were doing, we're going to kill you. And in the depiction of the emperor was this, uh, was this sword that um, in, in Latin it was the, the us gladi. I don't have a picture of it, but it's about this long. It's double-edged. And basically what it meant was, what, what us gladi meant was the, the governor of each region had one of these swords, and he was empowered to kill anyone that stood against him. And so when you saw that sword, you knew that double-edged sword yielded authority, and it was really the last word or the bottom line. And it struck fear in the Roman citizens whenever they saw that eus gladi which is a Latin word for um, uh, the, the, the sword of, um, of, of strength and justice. Now, that sword actually comes into play in what is being said by Jesus. And so just kind of put that file, put that little sword in your box of things that you found on this urban exploration. And as you go on in your exploration... From there to the goddess Athena and her temple, you go to the temple of Zeus. And Zeus's temple is um, pretty fantastic. That's, a, that's actually a depiction of it, a, a model rendering of it in a museum in Germany. And it doesn't really capture the scale of what it's really all about. And, and, and in essence, it's not really a temple per se, uh, but it is just a, a, a diorama of all of the Roman gods. It's a pantheon, of, so to speak, and is four stories high, and it is set in such a way that it is very intimidating in its presence whenever you see it in relation to the rest of the city. And the thing about Zeus's altar is it... Um, it, it, it it, it, it calls to mind the central controlling power of the god Zeus. He is, in Roman or in, in the words of the day, the literal, the literal wording is king of kings and lord of lords. Okay? So we have a deity in the center of this pantheon surrounded by all of the other gods in their depiction, and front and center is the King of Kings and of the Lord of Lords. Have you ever heard that phrase before? It is set on an altar because essentially that's what this is. It's an altar that looks like a throne, and Zeus is worshipped all hours of the day. In the process of that worship, you find that because he's king of kings and he's lord of lords, the alternate Hebrew, Jewish, 
Christian notion of Zeus is guess who? Satan, who wanted to be king of kings and lord of lords, who Jesus, whenever he was tempted in the wilderness, we know um, that when the tempter came, he says, I have been given authority over all of these things. These things have been given to me. They're mine. And essentially, this was a, 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 an altar on a mountain that had a city constructed on the top of it where a deity was saying, I rule from this mountain. I'm Zeus. Now, if you, if you grew up watching Disney, you may think of Zeus a little differently than they depict Zeus here, but Zeus is, in essence, a counterfeit of Jesus. But this is what people who lived in Pergamon, day in and day out, were required to, to recognize and offer sacrifices to on the altar here. And as this whole experience that you and I are going through is unfolding, there, there's another depiction that I, I want to show you, and that is in this city there's a theater, not just any theater, but a theater that can seat 10,000 people. And the way it's constructed is the location of the theater, the, the convex nature of it, it has, um, can, I, can I, I, I ran out of slides, and I have to go to the slide. There we go. Thank you, whoever did that. That theater right there, you can see it's sort of semi-bowl-shaped, and down at the bottom of, of that theater is where uh, the stage is. But it, you could be sitting at the top of that theater with 10,000 people, and if everybody's quiet enough, you could actually hear what was going on down at the bottom. It was just beautifully and acoustically uh, engineered in such a way that it served its purpose well. The reason why the theater is, is it's so interesting is because it's right next to the temple of the god Dionysius. And Dionysius, if, you, if you're aware, is the god of wine theater, and just partying. And the lore says that Dionysius was actually killed, but then he was resurrected and came back to life. And when John is writing his letters, or when he's writing his first gospel, he's saying that essentially in John 11 about Jesus, I am the resurrection and the life. And in the minds of a lot of people who are non-Jewish, they would be thinking, Oh, you're like Dionysius, because that's just, that was their point of comparison. For us, it's such a forgotten memory, we don't even know that story, but for people that were alive in that day, a lot of their references to how they looked at the world around them were drawn from that pantheon of gods that are at the altar of Zeus and how each of those gods represented a facet of life. There was another goddess up there who was the goddess named Ceres, C-E-R-E-S, and she was the goddess of our daily bread. She's the one who provided um, the crops that would either be blessed or cursed, and if you wanted to have a bountiful harvest, you would make sure that you provided a sufficient offering 
to Saris. And Saris, who in that, um, in, in, in that role, was just like all of the other gods. They had a controlling influence on the affairs of the life of the people, you and I, that inhabited the city. They were above us, and they had to be honored and respected. And if they weren't, well, there would be repercussions. But let's step back to Dionysius for a minute and how that theater was actually an expression of the spirit of Dionysius because essentially the theater was a place that if you had social ideas that were kind of conservative, uh, ideas socially that were acceptable, kind of the way of life, the theater is where you would go to push the envelope a little bit. Oh, that's sort of a taboo thing. We're going to we're going to dramatize how doing that thing, which we all know is kind of wrong, but we're going to do it in such an entertaining way that what it's going to show you is this is the direction that culture needs to be going. Isn't that weird? How entertainment is used to entertainingly create a new mindset about how we look at things, like people and relationships, and what is right and what is wrong. Isn't that odd? Entertainment. Huh. Well, as you know, um, what comes around goes around. The more things change, the more things stay the same. And you could visit that city, and you could probably say, huh, that sounds a lot like what I've experienced in my world in this way. And it's because that God who is on the throne, and I say lowercase God, has a way of relating to us that captures our imagination, that makes us fearful, that wields an authority, that pushes us in a direction that dehumanizes us that tears us down, that breaks our spirit. And there were people in this city that were living under those conditions. And as glamorous and glorious as it was to be a part of the Pergamum experience, if they went back to their homes and they did just a little self-awareness check on their souls, they would say, why do I feel so heavy? Why am I so afraid? Why do I feel so oppressed? Why, if everything is so good, I still am uneasy in my own skin about the life I'm living? But most people just said, just shake it off. That's just the way it is. Pergamum is just the way it is. Everything about it, from the government to entertainment to worship, that is just the way it is. And you don't want to go against it. You need to just accept it. Well, here we're reading this letter that John wrote called the Book of Revelation, and we're just reading this little brief statement about this 
little church that's trying to thrive in this community that is obviously saying a lot of things about itself that run contrary to their understanding of who Jesus is. And I'll give you, I'll give you a, a, another, another thing to put in your treasure box or your backpack as you're going along. And that is one of the, um, one of the gods that I didn't mention was the god Asclepius. Now, Asclepius was the god of medicine, of healing. Asclepius was actually called Soter, or the Savior. And so if you were sick, you went to the building in Pergamum that by their definition would be comparable to going to the Cleveland Clinic. It was the end-all and be-all of medical care. And people would come from all over the Roman Empire to this building that had as its patron god Asclepius. And the symbol that they would see for Asclepius would be a staff with a snake wrapped around it. And there was this, this idea that if you went there and you found healing, that you were to give an offering of of, of honor and appreciation to Asclepius, who is um, the empower of the doctors, enabling them to do their job. And so the, the doctors would quickly recognize that anything that I was able to perform to lead to your health was enabled by the spirit of Asclepius. And we need to give Asclepius his due. And so it was just expected that he was our savior. So you've got the king of kings and the lord of lords, Zeus. You've got the, the temple of Trajan, which houses the statue of Augustus Caesar, who it was described as the one who would be the bringer of peace. And not only that, the writing said, literally, the forgiver of sins. Isn't that weird? Have you ever heard language like that? King of kings, lord of lords, bringer of peace, savior, uh, forgiver of sins. Odd, isn't it? But... If you do the math, you know that we're not talking about the Bible here. We're talking about a whole complex that is designed for us to tune into and for everything that we needed in life, it would provide. Weird, huh? I'm glad we don't live in a day like that where none of those things are happening. Or do we? And as we step back and we ask the question, and if we do, what is the difference? Well, I would, I would guess that if you were a Christian and you were living there, you would feel tensions every day because somehow what they were saying and what you were understanding about Jesus just didn't match up. And this is a problem because 
I can't even imagine what it would have been like to be a follower of Jesus living in that beautiful and majestic and just awesome city on the hill called Pergamum. But living there had its price because if something started to go south as you lived in Pergamon or thereabouts, the number one question would be, somebody has angered the gods. They are not happy with us, and we need to find out why they're so upset. And living in the city of Pergamon were these people who used that same language for another deity, and they were called atheists. Isn't that weird? They were called atheists. We know them as Christians. And the reason they were called atheists is because they didn't believe in those gods anymore. They knew that those gods offered a false hope, a false vision, and a false narrative for life. Yet the words of Jesus resonated so deeply with them, they said, we're following him. But here's the problem. Imagine you and I leaving worship today, and everybody in Salem is upset because the economy's going down, there's a virus that's happening, and things are not well. And there's only one group of people that they know of that are not on board with the program and are probably causing the distress. And you know who those people are? Christians. Christians. Well, I don't know that we have that concern today. Maybe it'll come. Maybe somebody will come after us because we don't believe the way that they believe. Hopefully not. But let's say we were with those people and we're imagining what life is like and the recognition that somebody angered the gods and it seems like it's already happened I mean in the other seven letters persecutions are starting to ramp up it's already going on because when Jesus says uh, and if I can switch back to verse 12 of what, um, what we read. Maybe. To the angel of the church of Pergamon, Pergamon, these are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. W- wait a minute. I thought somebody else had that authority. But they're reminded, no, there's one person who has that authority. And as he's speaking, he says, I know where you live. Where Satan has his throne. Yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. Not even in the days of Antipas. So let's just stop for a minute and imagine what happened in the days of Antipas. Antipas probably was caught up in this, who do we blame for the failures that are happening in our city? 
Christians. And who's an outspoken Christian? Antipas. So a lot of scholars believe that at that theater one day, the entertainment was going to be the governor with his double-edged sword and Antipas and the conversation that would end with only one person remaining, that Antipas, who did not renounce his faith in front of 10,000 people, but stood confident in that hope and didn't compromise his beliefs. Man, this is really getting amped up, isn't it? Well, as he's writing this, this is in everybody's mind. And as they're considering it, there's a concern underway. Because Jesus says, nevertheless, I have a few things against you. There are some among you who hold to the teachings of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they ate food, sacrificed to idols, and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Well, I've already given you a lot on this exploration. Where I want to Where I want to go in the the last part of this message is, what is going on here? Well, it would seem like there are people who are following Jesus that are caught up in something that's compromising their faith. And one of them is very akin to Balaam, who we've read back in, I think, Numbers 28 and 29 and 31. He is a false prophet, Because he's compromising the word of God. He's trying to make it say something a little bit different. And God calls him out on it through the donkey. Remember that? And so Balaam is actually just a metaphor for what is happening to a group of people who are starting to believe a lot of other stuff tacked onto their Christianity. And as a result of that, Christianity is not even making any sense anymore. And then there's another group of people called the Nicolaitans who very much in the same way, are, are showing a kind of compromise where they don't even actually know what they're doing wrong. Have you ever wondered about that sometimes? Because there's so much that is happening out there that you just feel is wrong, right? Like, yeah, this just doesn't look like it's sustainable. This doesn't look like it's good, but everybody says it's awesome. And the Nicolaitans were those group of people who they didn't even know. And this is really where I want to go with this message. Because I think the biggest threat for people who are believers in North America today is the fact that they don't have a good understanding of the Word of God and how the Word of God has such a powerful place in the life of a believer, helping us to understand what is happening all around us. And the problem isn't so much that we're, 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 we're not immersed in things that have to do with Bibles and the Word of God, and we're not immersed in churches. It's just that we have the Word of God, it's in front of us, but it's not inside of us in ways that count. And it's, it's a burden that I have as a pastor, to be honest with you, because I know that the Word of God is the thing that helps us to keep on the path. It is the thing that defines the way. 
And I know that it, with that map in tow, we don't lose our way, but if we don't have it, we don't even know that there is a way. And if you look at all the institutions that I mentioned at Pergamum, from the government to the healthcare industry to the form of religion to the kinds of entertainment, a lot of people were just saying, um, this is a little overwhelming. And I don't know where Jesus fits in all of this. And it's believed that the Nicolaitans leader was saying, here's what God said. I know that you guys are living in this very oppressive environment. And I know that I'm going to save you out of that someday. But for now, I'm okay with what's going on. You, you just got to get through it. Does that sound right? And that's why Jesus had to say something. And this is what he said. You need to repent. And as he's speaking to these churches, we hear that word repent, and we've got a pretty modern notion of repent, as in hellfire and brimstone, and yeah, I, I, I saw you sneaking into the package liquor the other day, or you went and saw an R-rated movie, you know, that kind of stuff that you need to come correct on. And maybe, maybe we've done things that we need to repent of. So it's like, oh, my, 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 my soul and my conscience is sort of bugging me, and now I've got to confess it. Oh, I feel so much better because the blood of Jesus takes it, and it's now his. Now, don't get me wrong. Confession is an important part of repentance. It's necessary. But what repentance is, going back to the Hebrew Scripture, it's, it's the Hebrew word shuv, which means return to the path. Return to the path that you were on to begin with. And so you've got to ask the question, yeah, I recognize I screwed up. I recognize I, I made an error as I'm walking on the path. But it's a deeper question. The question is, what did you do in the first place to get you into that space? It's a little bit more comprehensive because the idea is let's step back, do a 20,000-foot view of where you started to go wrong, and then let's bring the Word of God to bear, the grace of Christ to bear, the forgiveness of God to bear, and also the map of where we're going to bear. The one thing that I know about Christianity is it is so wonderful in the ability that it has to point us to the reality of Jesus and how he is such a, oh, comprehensive healer and forgiver and wise person and king of kings and lord of lords and so much more that says, this is the good news. There's a better way. There's a better path. But I think a lot of people aren't in church today. And I'll just say this. A lot of people aren't in church today because somehow between the spirit of Balaam, which means deceiver, we have been deceived to think that everything that's happening around us is okay. And the spirit of, the, of, of, of Nico, which is from the goddess Nike, meaning victory or the one who conquers, we've been deceived and conquered. 
by the one who is the deceiver, by the one who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. But the good news is, that's why he says repent, because there is some good news to get you back on the path. Remember, he says in another part, your first love. Because you're living in a world that will cloud your mind daily. I, I, I had dinner with a friend of ours uh, last night, and we were talking about the news, and he said, you know what? Recently, I just gave up watching it. I just feel so much better. Now, I don't know what to tell you about your relationship to that thing called news, but I would say there's a little bit of deceiving going on. Just look at the effect that it has on people. I'd say there's a little bit of manipulation going on. I am very confused when I watch TV, to be honest with you. That's why I don't watch it. I'm not judging anybody. But there's something about the one who wields the double-edged sword that helps you and I to keep our true north. You know, that, that imagery of the sword is actually common in Scripture. It's used in... Uh, you know, Ephesians 6, where we read about the full armor of God. But particularly, it's used by one who is talking about staying on the path as he's drawing from the Old Testament. And this is what he says. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing the soul and the spirit, joint and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes to him who must give an account. There's a lot of things there, but one thing I would say is the word of God is the baseline for looking at the world for looking at your heart, for looking at your relationship with God. And I tell my kids that. I say, I know I'm a preacher. I, I know it's my job. But I want you to know something. I do believe in the Bible, and that's why I do what I do. And if I ever lost that conviction, I would stop doing what I do. I believe in the Bible for a lot of reasons. And one of the reasons is it is the only way I can keep my clarity in this insane world. And not only that, it is the only way I can stay attached to the one who truly rules it. And so when Jesus says repent, he's just basically saying, get back on the path. Get back to where you need to be. And if you're going off the path, figure out why it is that you, you, you've been deviating from the course. And with that little warning, he says... Um, awkward pause. He says, um, otherwise I will come to you and will fight against them with the sword in my mouth. Meaning that you can sort of get back online now or whenever I come and I just lay this all bare, you don't want to be caught up in that. Because God has a way of bringing to the surface 
in his time those things that aren't right. And he starts with us. Thank goodness. So we can deal with it and get over with. But I don't want to be in that, in, in that caught up in that crowd of people that God's saying, now I'm going to show you. Because Jesus' job is to try to woo us back into a relationship with God, not to come and just declare jihad on everybody and hope there's something left. He is just knocking on the door, and he's saying to you, I'm here when you're ready to open it up. And maybe you've been living in Pergamum far too long. And maybe you kind of feel like, yeah, I've lost my way. Perhaps this is the day that the Lord is showing you there is a different way. It's very similar in language, but completely different in where it's going. Jesus alone is King of kings and Lord of lords. But there is one who reigns in this world, and he keeps us captive until we consent to Jesus and say, you alone are my Lord and my Savior, and I renounce all other gods. You alone do I surrender my life to. And that's a necessary act to be brought into his kingdom. Because he's not going to force you in. But he is going to work in your heart He's going to work through your pain. He's going to take all the things that render confusion in your life and mine. And in that fog, he's going to give you a signpost. And he's going to say, this is the way. This is the way. This is the way. Maybe you haven't consented to him by surrendering your life and saying, I'll follow you. I want to help you do that however I can. It's kind of awkward in this time, but I've done a number of baptisms already this year with the pandemic happening, and I'm sure happy to do more because we're not living in neutral territory, and we've got to keep our wits about us, and we need to stay close to him. Would you bow with me? Father, I know I've, I've gone long in this message and I've taxed everybody's attention probably beyond what I should, but I pray, Father, that you would just use the substance of what's been presented to each of us so that we could be drawn back to the path, that we could turn away from those things that are deceiving us, that are trying to conquer us, that are destroying our souls, and turn to you, Lord, as the only one who brings peace the only one who has the true sword of authority based on your words that come out of your mouth, the only one who is the Savior, the only one who is the, the, um, the, the, the source of the stories that we tune into that shape our thinking. You, Lord, alone are the only one who can give us life because you are the resurrection and the life and there is no other. I pray, Father, for everyone in this room, everyone who's watching online, everyone that churches like ours are trying to meet and reach in a world that is so deceived and so conquered that you would break through. Help us, Father, to stay true to you. 
and to love other people in ways that are so extravagant and beyond explanation because you first loved us. We pray for your help. In Jesus' name, amen. I feel a little jacked up. I'm ready to, I don't know. I feel like I just need to do something. I don't know. Like I need to kick a door in. If someone could just like close one so I could kick it in real quick. I'm just ready to, I'm pretty, a little jacked. Um, and anyway, <laughs> uh, my wife and I, as you were preaching, I was thinking of this time my wife and I were, um, we were driving in a car and we had a sermon on and it was about, uh, it was about, uh, it was from the book of Exodus. And um God in the, in the plagues, okay? So there's 10 plagues, right? Uh, and the preacher said something, my wife and I looked at each other, we're like, we didn't know this, like, uh, God systematically took down all of Egypt's gods in each of the plagues. Uh, and each plague represents a God that he was taking down. I didn't know that. Like, they, they have a frog God, God sends frogs, they have a God of the Nile, God turns it to blood, and so on. Uh, we're like, wow, that's amazing. Like, I just like information by itself just kind of uh, got me kind of giddy and it was, and we just, it was amazing. Uh, up until the very last plague, which is death. And we meet a God who is Lord of Lords, King of Kings, and he is even so powerful as to hold the keys of life and death. Uh, so Jesus says, don't fear man who can kill the body, but fear God who can also kill the body and also the sword, the soul in hell. And he says some other things because that very God who systematically destroyed all of Egypt's gods put on flesh and became a man. So there's this text, it's a very popular one from the book of Exodus to bring us into our communion time. Yahweh, Yahweh is a compassionate and gracious God slow to anger and rich in faithful love. Truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving wrongdoing, rebellion, and sin. But he will by no means let the guilty go unpunished bringing the consequences of the father's wrongdoing on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. We get a thousand generations for those who humble themselves and submit to him gladly because this God is offering us rescue from the judgment that he will bring. He does that in the cross. He washes us clean in the blood that he shed against people who he created, created their bodies and their blood. He shed his own to, re to redeem us, restore us, and grant us life in infinite generations from now. And so, Father, thank you that you have sent your son, Jesus, that you have taken our place. 
And you have done justice, Father. You have made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And your sacrifice and great love and compassion and faithfulness forgives our wrongdoing, our rebellion, and our sin because you made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. It's worth repeating. Let us never stop meditating on it every day when we wake up. Catch us so that our mind would think on a gospel track and not on be some ladder we have to climb to gain your approval. You've already given us your approval if we are in Christ and out of the gate we're freed. May that be true for the, for the one who has come here today needing to hear it. May it be believed. May you be loved because you loved us first and sent your son to be the propitiation for our sins and it's in his wonderful and glorious name we pray. Amen. for that message, Lauren. I don't know about the rest of you, but like, I don't know, I like have like a comprehension problem or something. Like when I read, I have to read something like over and over until I understand or not even understand but actually think on what I read. But then even that, you read the Bible sometimes and you're like, you're just reading words. And you hear a lot of people saying, oh, you know, it's an old book. It's not relevant for these days. But hearing stuff like that, like, <laughs> like having... A culture that's set up to go exactly against Christ and what we're trying to do sounds a lot like what we're living in now and very relevant. Um, but it's just, it's nice to hear that it's not an outdated book. It's exactly what we need to hear always at all times. Um, so, thank you. Just, you know, you read the double-edged sword. He's talking about that. You read that passage in the book and stuff, or you hear it, but now you actually know like the cultural subtext that goes along with that. And I think the more we can understand what we're reading, the more we can apply it. So, pretty sweet to hear that kind of stuff. You want to stand up? Rich is going to take us out.
marvelous grace thank you that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord praise you that that is true that you are King of Kings Lord of Lords do the work of helping us to see you far after we leave here spirit I pray that you would continue doing the work of reminding us of our Savior when we wake up we're going to fail in ways we can't even see. But if we're accepted out of the gate, none of those things should have power over us to bring shame and guilt and discouragement and sorrow. We feel the weight of what we do, but thanks to you taking the condemnation of what we've done, we can praise you because you have risen. And the hope is the same for us. So we praise your holy name. And it's for that wonderful, perfect, and holy name we pray. Amen. All right, we love you. Go get your kids.